All right, everybody, welcome to the uh, November 7th edition of Cascadian Views. We've got the whole group here again this week. Dan and Chris, how are you guys doing? Good. Hey, good. Good to be back. Yeah. <laughs> so something like six years after it started, somewhere going around <laughs> 320 weeks, uh, Infrastructure Week has finally come to an end. Uh, we have a bill. It has gone to the president's desk for his signature, and i in fact, by this point, has almost assuredly gotten his signature. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it it came with some last minute twist and drama. Um, it had seemed like they had kind of reached an agreement on how things were going to go, and then in the middle of the day on Friday, um, Joe Biden called uh, Representative Jaya Powell while she was in the middle of hosting a congressional plus uh, progressive caucus meeting to let her know that uh, they were going to bring the infrastructure bill to the floor by itself. Uh, this caused a bit of a revolt. Uh, a lot of people got angry. The CPC said that uh, 20 of them were going to withhold their votes in the end. I'm not sure it mattered. We got 13 Republicans on it. We also did get a uh, a bit of a concession from the moderate Democrats, uh, which I think was basically required at that point. Even the House moderates were pushing back pretty hard about all the bullshit going on. Did you guys notice that? Yeah. Uh, well, they, everybody wants both bills to pass at this mm. point. But, yeah. <laughs> Or at least everybody but Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. I'm still not convinced. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess the final holdup was that the uh, Senate moderates wanted a CBO score of the uh, social uh, bill before they'd be comfortable committing to bringing it up to a vote. Uh, the House progressives said that they weren't going to vote for the infrastructure bill then until you know everything went through. The House moderates seemed to. The thing that really struck out to me, and it struck out enough to Axios that they uh, gave an entire bullet point to it in Axios sort of one paragraph stories that they do. Uh, Golden from Maine, who is not at all a progressive Democrat, he is very mm -hmm. much a conservative Democrat, uh, yep. basically said if they want to wait for a score, we should wait for a score for both, both bills and not do anything right now. Uh, which I really read as giving a lot of cover to the Democrats who wanted to vote down the infrastructure bill for the time being. Uh, but in the end, they, they rounded up enough people. Yeah, well, and, you know, some of the behind-the-scenes stories are pretty, you've, I think we've posted some of them in the group, but are okay. pretty riveting as mm -hmm. far as Jayapal, like, you know, literally making moderates stare her in the eyes and <laughs> promise that they were going to vote for the social bill. Yeah, yeah. There will be support later. <laughs> They're not going to back down. Uh, and was it? I think. Sorry, Dan. Oh, go on. I mean, I think. Yeah, I think they. There would be. They would have support from Pelosi later on to get the be you know build back better bill, <laughs> the four B bill, passed <laughs> later on. I don't think. The House is going to be the issue, as we've kept saying. It's always going to be get it through the Senate. That's always going to be the problem. And I think that's what progressives are most or should be most worried about. Yeah. 
I've been actually incredibly disappointed in Shumo's leadership in the Senate. I don't think he's really done much of anything to wrangle the caucus. He's kind of mostly letting them sort it out on their own, which seems ill-advised. <laughs> uh, but on the question of leadership here, did it strike you guys as interesting that Biden called Jayapal to announce that? Well, I think, I mean, he wanted to make sure that there was going to be the votes through, I think, was the idea. And well, that yeah. They wanted to make sure that... But, so if I'm thinking about the progressive faction, there's a couple of my name, a couple of names that come to mind in terms of, like, who I could call if I wanted to call the person in charge. Not, you know, clear-cut necessarily, but there, there's a couple names. I wouldn't have necessarily thought Jai Powell was one of them. No, no, she's, she's the head of the caucus. Yeah, the CPC, but I don't think she... I think there's a very elephant-in-the-room spiritual leader on that side, uh, and that's going to be AOC. <laughs> right. No, 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 no. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I think if there's someone you want to elevate, though, it's got to be Jayapal. I mean, she's the one with the maturity. She's the one who cuts deals. I mean... AOC, I mean, you look, she ultimately, she didn't vote for the damn thing after they cut the deal. I mean, that's, if you want to look at who's someone you can work with to actually get the damn thing done, I think Jayapal is the one you got to call. And I think that that's probably why he called her in the first place and why he's she's the person that they've been working with all along. Yeah, well, that surprised me too just, much. Uh, I mean... I don't know how much of a sense Pelosi had about this already, but she probably had some sense about it. Yeah. That there would be some vote trading and there would be some room on that front. But what they couldn't have is have like the 95-member progressive caucus right. get nervous en masse. Right, I also right. don't think Pelosi knew quite as much as we think she did. Uh, those votes from the, the people who voted no, those were some of the last votes to come in. Those came in like right before the the voting period ended on the spill. I oh yeah, something tells me that Pelosi did not know the number of yeses they were going to get on that vote until the end. Well, I think I mean the the fact that they waited to vote no until the end tells me that was you know that was they were safe no's. Well, yeah, but I'm saying. The fact that they weren't, you know, up front at the very beginning of that roll call tells me that they weren't sure if they were going to need them or not. That they didn't know what the final tally would be. You know, that... Yeah, or, I mean, that's possible, or it's also possible that... Let me, put it, let me put it this way. Those votes would be yes votes if we needed them. We did right. not know that we that's would exactly. need them. So they voted last until we could be sure that the bill would pass. <laughs> And then they got that's, the no votes in. I right. think that's the correct interpretation. I mean, if they if they had to be yes votes, they would have been. But yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that that is necessarily a sign that Pelosi was hedging. I think maybe they were hedging. Yeah. Because they'd heard there were a certain number of trade off votes from the Republicans. Maybe they'd even heard Nancy say they were in the bag, and they may have thought, well. Let's see. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I mean, the question is how much of a stunt they needed. To, they felt like they could make, and it was safe enough that yeah, they could make a statement vote, and 
that was what they did. So, all right. I mean, I guess it depends on how much value you place on that. I mean, for what it's worth, I, you know, personally, I don't place a lot of value on that, but I think they, they know their districts better than, than we do. So, right. Yeah. They, they feel that they may feel that that's necessary to hold on to their constituency. I'm not so sure, but all right. <laughs> well, it's kind of, you know, it strikes me that the whole thing is kind of the reverse of what you usually see, which yeah. you usually see like, okay, we're going to try and do something kind of progressive and how many moderate or purple state people can we let take a pass on it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this was that, but in reverse. I mean, I don't think the voters in deep blue districts are demanding that their representatives defect from the leadership or defect on on a vote like this. I mean, that, that, that's not what this is about. I mean, this is really more about signaling to signaling to, I guess, kind of more intra-party activists like the DSA than, you know, voters in their district necessarily. And, you know, that's a constituency as well, I suppose. But, yeah, it's not really about the New York 14th district or the voters in, you know, Rashida Tlaib's district. It's, again, it's about, yeah, DSA or, you know, justice democrats or you know groups like that than you know the voters in their district necessarily mm-hmm. all right um one thing that i think kind of ties into our next topic here uh mcauliffe was talking and he said we got the infrastructure bill done too late i think there's a lot of truth to that yeah uh, Virginia, which we're going to move into now, I guess, uh, went terribly <laughs> for the Democrats. Yeah, We lost the governor's race. We lost the House of Delegates. Uh, New Jersey, we did win, but it was not by much in a state that, you know, is by New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I mean, yeah, both states, you know, the margins aren't, I mean, the margin in Virginia was not Terrible. I mean, it was like what at the end of the day they you know all lost by about two percent. But I mean, yeah, this is a state that Biden won last year by like ten. So the swing is terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the comparison. I mean, because yeah, I mean, you compare it to like twelve years ago, and you know, McDonald ended up winning by nearly twenty percent. But again, yeah, the swing, the swing is the problem. Yeah, I mean, the swing was terrible, and where the swing was was terrible, and who the swing was was terrible. Yeah, I mean, it was across the board. It was across the whole state. Just it was across the whole state, whoa. and it was particularly marked among suburban women, which, yeah. you know, was the whole way that we won the presidency. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Turns out the most powerful electoral block in American politics might just be suburban white women. This is <laughs> unexpected and disastrous. <laughs> At least on this go-round. Yeah. I mean, 
they've they've always been a very powerful voting block, but they've been yeah, a very they silent voting block. So decisively, so quickly. Yeah, and there's been some interesting reverse feedback from it too, and um, in terms of the House in the soft infrastructure package putting back in paid family leave. Mm -hmm. The uh, the reason I say it's like a silent uh, voting block, like in, in my childhood, it was common to think of families like voting as a unit. Like suburban families would all vote for the same person, generally a Republican. Uh, it, it's only in the last couple decades, two or three decades or so, that we've really seen suburban women emerge as a distinct voting group outside of suburban families. And... Mm -hmm we kind of need that there is there's not just you know an age difference in american politics in terms of party support there's there's definitely a gender division too women are are vastly more likely to be democrats than men are and if we go back to having a huge segment of women locked into basically who their husbands voted for that's that's not great no i mean then we can't win yeah <laughs> So that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a strange one considering how much thought the party has gone into um, making sure that people of color get equity in our policies and our electoral approaches. And, and now we're going to have to put some thought and some effort into appeasing what is largely white women, which just seems so odd considering what we've gone through in the last few years. Yeah, it's kind of a perennial issue, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a really important voting group. Yeah, yeah. And do you think the CRT talk in Virginia had anything to do with them kind of fleeing the party? It, it, it's going to be hard to nail down this. Specifically, that I mean, just because it's been just such a big, such a big cloud of gas that Republicans were spewing out there. Yeah, I mean, because they it was just so much nonsense from start to finish. They just invented this controversy about something that was supposedly being taught in schools that just really didn't exist. Yeah, see, uh, this, that's my takeaway from this. There are certain things where I can see where I can see an honest different of, difference of opinion. Where, you know, I look at something and I see one thing and somebody looks at something and sees another thing. There are certain levels of, like, scams and cults where I hear what somebody is saying and I look at them and I have to just think, like, you know what you're saying is bullshit, right? You you cannot be a functioning adult human and, and not know that this is just made up. Uh, and I'm at that place with the critical race theory nonsense. And so... It, it honestly makes me fear for the future if there's a majority of the voting population that somehow looks at that and is like, oh, you know, that is a valid concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And education was really kind of a, I mean, kind of a code in in the Republican campaign for all kinds of interrelated issues related to you know lockdowns and things like that and 
even bring back old things like bathroom panic and stuff like that. Just all yeah. kinds of interrelated social issues that it's really hard to parse out. Or even and even normal politics that, you know, had nothing to do with the online campaign. I mean, because I guess, you know, completely unrelated to the stuff that was happening on the internet, when you get just back onto what was happening in commercials, I guess, you know, Yunkin was promising some fairly ordinary education politics, you know, in his TV ads, like, you know, hiring more teachers and things like that, you know, just entirely unrelated to the, you know, batshit, you know, conservative grievance politics. Uh, but, you know, and all of that, you know, kind of comes under the umbrella of education. So, I mean, it's definitely something that activated the base and something that kind of turbocharges everything. And it's something that, you know, Trump people can definitely latch on to. Um, something that, uh, so I, th I think there's probably a little bit of a grab bag for each group, you know, that ended up kind of coming to Yunkin to maybe find something they could like or find something they could dislike in McAuliffe to, uh, you know, say education was a reason for voting that way. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of any other anything else that might have had to do with it or tying back into it. I mean, the only other insight I can really think of in the patterns that really jump out at me was um, turnout was just absolutely massive as well, mm -hmm. which is you know the other kind of ominous sign to keep an eye out. You know, the other big test. Because this was, you know, Trump level turnout in, you know, the the hinterland, which is, you know, one of the things that we were hoping would go away was that he would stop turning out all the marginal freaks that right. would uh, that only seemed to be coming out when he was on the ballot, and you know, they basically kept Trump at arm's length as far as they could, and. You know, these folks all came out and voted anyway. So that's not good going forward. On that note, in a silver lining, I think. Oh, uh, a silver yeah, lining yeah. to that, though, is that the pollsters seem to pretty much nail that. Uh, the, the final yeah. 538 consensus had turnout within 0.2% of where pollsters thought it would be. Uh, so, I mean, that's pretty good they're starting to nail the electorate which is something they had trouble with the last couple cycles seems like they're figuring it out finally yeah they're getting better at mapping that and yeah so that's a positive <laughs> a clearer map of doom <laughs> yeah we could finally project what it's like of having these freaks participating every time to come out and Vote for their god king. Did you see the <laughs> Onion article uh, after the election? Um, I don't think I did. Virginians <laughs> who watch schools taken over by Sharia law refuse to make same mistake with critical race theory. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh -huh. It's pretty good. Oh, no. Yeah. And so, so, go ahead, Chris. Well, 
I was just going to maybe bring up some of the other electoral things that went on, but... Oh, perfect, because you just did that transition for me. That's exactly (laughs) what I was going to (laughs) do. Yeah, I mean, what really strikes me about this is if it was just Virginia, you might look for kind of like, uh, you know, more more dynamic specific to that race. Um, But New Jersey the vote kind of swung by the same sort of double digit margin. You know, Mm -hmm. if you look county by county as it did in Virginia and that race was just so much closer than it had any right to be. Um, Everywhere that anything vaguely police reform related as a measure or as a candidate was on the ballot, it got slapped silly. New York had a couple of just like should have been slammed dunk voting issues measures fail mm-hmm. it's uh it's not a good sign <laughs> i will say we're a year out and there's lots of things that could still happen but it's definitely not a good sign for the magnitude of kind of counter reaction i'm tired of thinking about things that could happen though we've had we've had control of government for basically a year at this point and mm-hmm. we've done nothing with it We've done nothing. We've done absolutely nothing. And that that's just so disheartening for so many people. We we brought together this massive coalition on the promise of like making some real changes and and using that four years of crisis as a uh, an inflection point to say, you know, never again, and and we're going to have responsible government. And then we have turned around and done fuck all for a year. Uh, I I just I feel like we've already wasted our last best shot. And you know, if we turn the keys over, turn the the keys to the car over to the other side, which we're going to have to do in a couple of years, I just I don't see any recovery from that at this point like we are speeding over the cliff and we got control of the car and we've given it slightly less turbulence as it goes over the cliff (laughs) that's been like the extent of our changes yeah but i mean to what extent was that inevitable when Mm -hmm. the result a year ago was almost getting washed out in the house and just barely drawing even in the Senate. I mean, I would, I would hope that would spur the resolve, you know, that would point out that this is a, a very tiny window that we are not likely to get again. And we're going to save this fucking country. We'd better do something with it. Which is exactly what progressives have been saying. Like house progressives have been saying, you, know, you got to tell that to Joe Manchin. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know who I have to tell it to. I just, I, I can't fucking yeah. believe this. I, I really can't. It is very frustrating. Yeah, that's that's the story of the year. And we're doing it to ourselves. Like, the Republicans aren't even at fault here. I mean, it may be a little bit with the filibuster. Well, they are. They filibuster but, everything. Yeah, but we knew that was coming. <laughs> They're not pulling some, like, dastardly new villain stunt. They're doing exactly what we thought that they would do. They had their exact battle plan, and we just don't have an answer to it. (sighs) You only have 50 seats in the Senate. That's all it takes to change those rules. 
And not we can't when get 50 seats to, to say that they agree with that. Yeah, we're shooting ourselves to fucking fudge. You've, at most, you've got maybe, I mean, we don't know. I mean, because we've only got, I mean, we've got at least a hard two that say no way, but there could be another half a dozen more with them saying, you know, we don't, mm-hmm. not going to do this. And those people are dumb as hell, Dan. Those yeah. people are dumb <laughs> as hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not disagreeing with <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, unless you are literally only in it for yourself. (laughs) But, you know, if you are even slightly interested in how your party is faring or how the country will do, the fact that they haven't found some way to get those two voting bills unstuck, it's just game over if you don't do that. Maybe this is a mental thing, and I just don't have the right sociopathic mindset, but I cannot imagine anybody in the senate being there for themselves you don't get rich in the senate like in fact you have to be rich to get to the senate basically <laughs> right like uh, the, a senator's salary is basically peanuts compared to what you can get at any lobbying firm or or you know running a even a small business i mean senators get like what two hundred thousand dollars a year it's like basically nothing for white collar america you know, they can go work on Wall Street for six times that amount as, you know, their first job in the door out of government. Uh, so it just boggles my mind. Like, you are set for life. This is the last real job you are ever going to have. Like, do you want to sit in the chair for forever or do something? And if you do something great, maybe you get to sit in the chair for forever anyway. And if you don't get to sit in the chair for forever, you go out knowing you did something like make a difference in the country that gave you so much yeah maybe i'm just maybe you do have to be a psychopath to be an elected official maybe that is true <laughs> uh, but yeah i'm i'm completely expecting us to lose both houses of congress in winter this year. oh yeah yeah i think that is i'm that that's pretty well baked in yeah yeah Chris, is there any possible hope that Dan and I are just <laughs> too depressed for our own good? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let him answer. I'm, Let him answer. No, okay. <laughs> Dan doesn't even think it's <laughs> worthwhile collecting the answer. Um, well, I'll tell you, there are so many structural factors in the House, and we got so slapped silly in 2020. I just don't see how we hang on to the House. I could see a case in the Senate, but when things go wrong, they kind of tend to go wrong everywhere. So, yeah. I mean, I I'm just trying like, to imagine. I mean, it's... yeah. I mean, these are the things that could happen, right? Okay. Yeah. What could happen is, say, a year from, or say, like next summer. Next summer, COVID could be on the run, consumer demand could be way up, the economy could be booming. You know, all those things could happen. And I think even so, we probably lose the house because there's just so many headwinds. Yeah. I mean, the economy's booming right now. Blasted. So, yeah, that's what that's what kills me. I mean, 
10 years ago, we got blasted in Virginia. The economy sucked ass. So, yeah, I could understand mm. that. But this time, why is Biden so unpopular? And when things are basically fine, that's what kills me. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it. Approval rating just hit 38%. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's out of goddamn nowhere. I think and, a lot of it's Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghanistan and just the general feeling that, well, I still have hemorrhoids, goddammit, Biden. What the fuck? Let's go Brandon. <laughs> no, I, 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 think, yeah. I think Afghanistan's more of it than I think any of us realize. And it's not just so much what actually happened, which, let's be clear, was bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah, that was, was not well executed. So, it was really bad. Uh, but also it was particularly bad for Biden because he ran on a platform of he's he's the guy who is going to do the normal government stuff. He is going yeah. to be the responsible person. And since we did not get any big wins out of Congress, since we did not get any signature legislation, what's the first thing he does of any like high visibility? Some Jimmy Carter ass shit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think Afghanistan uh. is going to turn out to be basically the thing that screwed it all and the sad yeah. part is i don't think afghanistan would have really mattered if there had been other news you yeah. know if there had been some big wins out of congress something to reinforce his i'm the stable guy narrative before it all got blue to shit in afghanistan yeah. yeah so i mean i guess now that we've got this and maybe in a few weeks we get build back better i guess you think it's too late to write the ship? I do. I do. Yeah. I think the narrative's set. Well, shit. Uh, I think I the midterms don't... are screwed, and I really think at this... It... I mean, I hate to say it, but I do think we need to start thinking about another nominee. I mean, I mean... It, it, it would be one thing if Biden had been a complete candidate. If he had had, a, you know, a platform and a proposal... But his platform was, I'm not Trump. His platform was, I'm the stable guy. His platform was nothing specific. It was, right. his entire reason for being in the office right now was to not have uh, amateur hour bullshit. And what we got in Afghanistan was amateur hour bullshit. Uh, he, he, he set it up himself so he got like that one chance on the national stage and the rug got pulled out. Maybe he does a transformation. Chris is about to tell me I'm wrong, so... We should listen to him too, but all right, I I feel <laughs> uneasy. No, I also feel very uneasy. The only the only positive I see in it, well, I see two positives, and one of them is horrifying. But um, the first positive I see in it is it's early. Yeah, <laughs> it's early for him to be slapped this silly, and you can be slapped this silly and actually be doing really well as little as a year later, certainly two or three years later. I mean, yeah, I mean, at this point in his presidency, Bill Clinton was, you know, falling over his face all right. the damn time. So there's that. Yeah, but Bill Clinton had always fallen over his, his goddamn face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right after his comeback win in New Hampshire, the Jennifer Flowers story broke. Like 20 minutes after he won New Hampshire. Yeah, that and, was Bill Clinton's brand. Was he surviving by the skin of his teeth on everything? Yeah, 
And he was also a much more personally charismatic politician. Extremely. So there is that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I am just saying, if Don't a year from now... Out. <laughs> <laughs> if a year from now, the supply chain stuff is kind of ironed out and COVID is on the run and the infrastructure bills are passed and... Yeah, you know, it could be a very different flavor. I don't think it's a different enough flavor to save the house. Because <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think the house just has too many things working against it. It might be enough to pull out the Senate. But the other thing that occurred to me from what you were saying just now is that this is a lot of people's take on Virginia, too, is that McAuliffe basically ran against Trump, and that didn't have a lot of valence for people. Um, in 2024, the nominee, whoever they are, may actually be running against Trump. <laughs> yeah. At the presidential level, that may actually be a working strategy again. It'll be Trump. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> in terms of the, like, recovering from it thing, let, let's look at one of Obama's, uh, what turned into a saving grace, but was kind of a big controversy early in his term at about the same level. And that, that's going to be the bailouts. The bailouts were extremely unpopular with a wide range of people. And even, you know, senators in their own party said he had to own it. Like, this wasn't going to be on them. It was going to be on him. And this was a big albatross around his neck for basically most of his first term. And by the yeah. time his reelection came up, what had happened? We had saved the American auto industry. We had sold GM off at a profit. The government actually made money on that deal. You know, we saved a couple hundred thousand jobs and, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, these states rewarded him for, for having their backs on this when it was extremely unpopular. Where's the recovery from Afghanistan? Where's, where's that decision coming back around to actually be prescient and him getting points for that? I, I don't see how that turns around like that. Oh, I, I, I mean, guess that's my, my problem with the whole recovery thing. This is... This was a narrative setting thing. It's not yeah. it's not about the actual results. It's about setting the narrative. And there's that narrative gets cemented early and there's no chance to flip that like there was with the bailouts in Obama. Afghanistan probably gets fixed the next time he handles some foreign crisis competently. That's probably the only thing that does that. Right. If it's a big one and if it's yeah because yeah. i mean people are just gonna have to forget about afghanistan itself and yeah. eventually they will but yeah he's gonna i mean the next time that there's some kind of foreign flare-up and he doesn't screw it up that's what it's gonna be that's pretty much the only thing that's gonna heal that i'm not entirely sure people should forget about it. they shouldn't but they will I mean, they, they'll, they'll, they'll vaguely remember it until, again, he <sighs> handles something competently. Like, that one kind of really hit me, I guess not personally, but hard. You know, we had spent so much time in this country over a number of years dealing with the reckoning on our treatment of women and the Me Too movement. Uh, yep. Toss some of the people who are most prominent in our culture off to the side because of the idea that, that women matter and how mm -hmm. you treat them should matter in a civilized society. And then we, for 
whatever reason we chose, I know there are good arguments for leaving Afghanistan. We we basically condemned an entire nation of women to little better than slavery. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, that... We should be punished for that. I just, I wish everything had gone so much better with all of that. So, I mean, the alternative was to stay. Yeah. Yeah. So, if we're going to save the Senate in the midterms, where do we pick up seats? Because there's there's a couple that I'm worried about. Um, I think Warnock down in Georgia is a tough sell. yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but I do do think it's a tough sell. Although I mean, a less tough sell if he's running against Herschel Walker. I guess. I mean, but I mean shit. Maybe. I mean, it's also Herschel <laughs> Walker, dude. Like that I name mean, is royalty. In, in I don't Georgia. even care who he's running against. If Virginia swung that hard, like, yeah, mean, he could be running against a baked potato. I'd still be Georgia. Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, shit. Yeah. Holy crap. I'm also more worried than I think I should be about Catherine Cortez Masco in Nevada. Um, yeah. I think Nevada is going to be a hard sell. Mark um, Kelly? No, Mark Kelly. Yeah. Has, Mark Kelly has the perfect personality for that. Uh, he's not a fire breather. He's also not gumming up the works. He's a serious person. I, I think I he suppose. plays well in Arizona. I think that's all. Those are all tight seats. And uh, uh, what's her name in uh, New Hampshire? Hassan. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maggie Hassan. The only pickup opportunities I could even possibly imagine us having in any sort of world are, are going to be. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Yeah, exactly. Ron Johnson, Wisconsin, and, and Toomey retiring in Pennsylvania. Those are the only two seats. I think we even have the smallest play at, and I don't think we're going to win either of those. Yeah, it's going to be a real tough, real tough sell on either. So maybe, but not easy. And it's sort of, I mean, it matters for exactly one reason, which is the judiciary. But if you lose the House anyway, you're not passing anything. Right, but um, I mean... Breyer won't get his ass off yep. the court. Yeah, <laughs> he should. There's a lot for that reason. Mm-hmm. After yesterday, after this week, he really needs to retire. As in yesterday, my God. Because <laughs> we, yeah, I think we are going to lose the Senate. So I don't think there's a chance in hell we keep it. Um, so yeah. In fact, I'm not even, I'm not even putting like a supermajority past the the Republicans. If the swing that was represented in Virginia was like nationwide, I think Warnock's gone. I think Bennett is probably gone. I think Kelly has a chance to go. I think Masco has a chance to go. I actually think Oregon, if they have the right candidate and that sort of national swing has a chance to lose Wyden. Wyden? Yeah. My goddamn. Yeah. Yeah, our Senate races are typically yeah. pretty close. I mean, we elected a Senate uh, Republican to the Senate as recently as like 2006 or something. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, and if there's yeah, yeah. if there's like a 12, 15 point swing nationwide, I could see us doing it again. Yeah, I mean, the, the good thing is in 2022, there's only so many seats we can lose, but yeah, there's still there's still a few. So yeah, in terms of uh, Democrat seats up. Uh, in the midterms next year. It's Hawaii, Arizona, 
uh, Padilla seed in California, Masco seed in Nevada, Wyden, uh, Murray up in Washington, Bennett in Colorado, Duckworth in Illinois, Warnock in Georgia, uh, Holland, Van Holland in Maryland, Schumer in New York, Leahy in Vermont, Hassan in New Hampshire, and uh, Blumenthal in Connecticut. All right. So, yeah. So, yeah I, think... I, I could see in a worst case scenario, like a 15 point nationwide swing. We lose Bennett, we lose Kelly, we lose Masco, we lose Wyden, uh, we lose Hassan. And uh, Van Hollen is a toss-up, and Warnock is gone in Georgia. Yeah. Well, I mean, I yeah, I count you know four of those at least in serious danger, and then another probably two or three that are at least in serious contention. So yeah. So yeah, that's that's serious. And then 2024 is also. I mean, we will in 2024 we will definitely lose Mansion. We will definitely lose Tester. Uh, almost certainly lose Brown. So yeah, could there? I don't know if you lose Mansion. Um, oh, I don't yeah. know if it matters though. Yeah, <laughs> by that point it doesn't. But because we've <laughs> lost the majority, so yeah. So yeah, I mean the Senate's in lousy shape for a long time to come. Twenty twenty four, I'd actually start worrying about New Mexico if we're still as unpopular. Yeah. Well. By then, I mean, you got to worry about Biden's re-election. So. Oh, Anyhow, we're, we're way ahead of ourselves. Um, yes. Want to talk about local stuff? Seattle? <laughs> uh, actually, I want to talk about a very important anniversary. Do you guys know what today is? Today is the day it got called for Biden. Not what I'm thinking about. That what is else? what I was thinking of, yeah. <laughs> Today is Not the one-year anniversary of the Four Seasons Total Landscaping press conference. <laughs> yes! <laughs> ah, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, man. Haven't heard much from Rudy lately, you know? <laughs> Seems to have been hiding out. He was leaking his oil on national TV was the last time I saw anything about him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the way he's under uh, probable imminent indictment that's got him a little quieter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's nice. Not hearing much from him. That's that's yeah. actually quite pleasant. Uh, we do have a called race up in the Seattle City Attorney's uh, election now, and Seattle has a Republican City Attorney for the first time in well, my entire life. Yeah, probably the first time to have a Republican elected official in just about anything. Oh man. So. Well, uh, yeah. We're about to Dan, you've been talking for a long time about a Giuliani effect, a Giuliani type figure uh that could emerge in this city, you know, as strong of a democratic stronghold as New York was. And I think we're starting to see exactly that. Yeah, I think the the limits of a certain type of politics in the Pacific Northwest and, you know, the possibility of backlash are becoming stronger and stronger, uh, at least in both Portland and Seattle. I think we are starting to see. I think, yeah, at least between the two cities, I think, 
I think the center is holding a little bit better in Seattle. These results, at least in the city attorney's race, notwithstanding. Um, I don't know how's how's Wheeler doing down there. It seems like he's uh, yeah. So how's we, that? Is there a recall still going on for him? I, I don't think so. At least I haven't heard anything about it, and I haven't been approached for a signature or anything. Okay. Okay. Uh, I will say that a new new political action committee has formed. It's the People for Portland, um, and they just dropped the biggest uh expenditure report in the history of city politics over the last quarter the last three months they've spent five hundred thousand dollars uh usually that's spent on lobbying and taking meetings with people on capitol hill that has not been the case for them they've instead instead spent it on public outreach they've gone all up on the air uh, on tv with ads they've gone face to face with community groups neighborhood associations in portland which is for archaic reasons, basically the way we run our city in these little fiefdoms that get complete control over everything. Uh, they have now, just in the last couple of weeks, begun to reach out to City Hall. Um, a couple of the people who got elected last year, including Mingus Maps, are receptive. Apparently some of their demands are rehiring, uh, I think it's 20 Portland police officers and upping their pay and hours. Uh, and making more aggressive moves on homeless camp sweeps. Uh, it's no, getting I was the just going to ask what the yeah. people for Portland wanted, but yeah, <laughs> yep, you've just yeah. told me. Yeah, it's it's the law and order stuff. It is exactly the the Giuliani playbook. Um, and I see their point with a lot of it. Uh, the homeless camps are so bad around here. Uh, it's just it's incredible. We have Hoopervilles up and down Powell. I mean, mansions literal like acre blocks completely covered in you know one giant structure made out of tarps and i don't know what's underneath them presumably a bunch of different rooms and crap but just these these huge sprawling encampments up and down the city uh meth has gotten so bad in the last few years i, I don't know if you know this but you remember the faces of meth campaign that started here in Portland. Yeah. That was a Multnomah County uh, public service thing back in the early 2000s. And they eventually got meth overdoses down to a low of 43 um, in 2008. Uh, last year, they were six times that. Uh, there was a big story in the Willamette Weekly that focused on how cartels are using these homeless camps as distribution nodes for meth uh, that's brought in from Mexico. Uh, and these people who literally have like no support structure whatsoever are taking the only jobs they can really get, which is slinging this meth. And you find needles all over the place. Like I totally see where where they get traction because I don't like living around all this either. Uh, but I, I can tell you, man, it's not going to stop it at that. This is. It yeah. seems to be so they're not required to release their their funding sources, but a couple of people have confirmed that they've made donations to the groups uh, and they're all people within the Portland Business Alliance, which has been a, a group that's been pressuring the city to deal with homelessness downtown for years at this point. So I right. Uh, we'll see where it goes, but I, I do think you're right that the center is holding a little bit more in Seattle than there's in Portland. It's yeah, it's it's getting kind of wild here. 
Yeah. Yeah, the other the other races in Seattle were at least uh, up towards the top of the ballot, you know, pretty resoundingly for, you know, the more, you know, moderate liberal side of the ballot. I mean, Bruce Harrell won pretty decisively. I think it was like a 60-40 split, at least on the mayor's race. Uh, some of the city council races, I think I saw... So it was like look like Sarah Nelson beating Nikita Oliver by similar margins. So yeah, kind of a drubbing for the left wing in the Seattle races. Um, Teresa Mosqueda won her reelection, although she's kind of a bridge figure for left and moderates. Um, and she won, you know, again pretty handily. So. I guess there's that consolation, but uh, yeah, it was definitely not a not a night to be running on uh, the whole police abolition uh, and various uh, attached uh, policy platforms mm. in Seattle. Or nationwide. Or nationwide. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, similar. not even. I mean, not even on, you know, police reforms that have unfortunately gotten tagged with, you know, the slogans, you know, associated with defund the police. I mean, the mini, the Minneapolis, you know, police reform measure really had nothing to do with defund the police. It was like creating a new police department separate from their own old department. But because it got tagged with the you know slogans associated with defund the police, it went down. But it wasn't a defund the police measure at all. So there you go. Okay. Uh, the other local story I had from here was uh, Oregon Supreme Court has upheld Portland's renter relocation policy. This was part of a uh, it was initially a push for rent control, but that kind of it kind of floundered and they instead enacted a bunch of uh, tenant protection measures, one of which was this relocation measure. If your building is less than 15 or more than 15 years old and your landlord raises the uh, rent by more than 10% in a year, they have to pay a reasonable relocation cost. Uh, and it's been under a four year effort by uh, basically a business association for landlords to, to kill it and well, now the Supreme Court has completely blessed it. So that's good news. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, my apartment is not eligible for that. Uh, it's a brand new building. I was the first tenant who moved in. I was a little bit disappointed when they added that, you know, minimum like age of the building clause into it because it would have been nice. Anything going on up in Washington besides the elections, Dan? That was the main thing I was following this week was uh, what was happening in Seattle. Our uh, Whatcom County elections went just fine here. We returned our uh, sensible uh, center-left majority here on our uh, Whatcom County Commission, so not a lot of disruption there. So we're sitting pretty. And you still got terrible representatives in the state assembly. Uh, oh, we didn't. Have, you know, we didn't have our. You know. Oh, it was just local elections. Just okay. local elections here. Gotcha. All right. 
Well, then still Chris... wait, still waiting on our uh, redistricting. So, what about you, Chris? Anything new out there? Uh, there's been a little bit of activism around the kind of, you know, they have policies for when they open up shelters or when they open up hotels for homeless people, given the weather. Mm-hmm. And uh, wait, does the city like pay the hotels or? Do hotels just legally get converted into like homeless shelters? I believe the city pays them. I would have to look into the mechanics of it, but but yeah, there's um a fairly well what from my side of it seems like a fairly draconian definition of when it's cold enough. <laughs> and so there's been some agitation against it, but um, so far the governor hasn't really moved as a result. We have a very similar thing here. The county has emergency warming shelters, but they only open up when temperatures are expected to drop below freezing, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us this week, and I suppose we'll be back next week with more doom and gloom about the future of this country. <laughs> I'm sure things will be in an upswing by next week. I'm not yes. at all confident in that. Human infrastructure, come on. It'll turn things around. You know what? I still think it's more likely than not the other bill doesn't pass. Oh, I was talking, don't, get that, don't I, get that to me. I was talking with Chris about this, and, you know, the goalposts move every time you have to talk to, to these two, and that's not something you do if you're actually trying to come to a solution. You lay, you lay your cards on the table, you tell them what you need, what you're willing to accept and you guys kind of fudge around it it's no it's this is the problem okay 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 we solve it then you're good now right no because this is a problem (laughs) okay okay we solve this we solve it you good now no because they're just they're delaying it and i i don't think you do that if you're actually negotiating in good faith i just i don't think that second bill is going to pass i i choose to believe that this was the uh unreasonable demand that they were seeking and so now that we've met it we're kind of broken the log jam so we'll see i hope i don't expect but i hope (laughs) all right have a good week guys you too all right later